Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Friday, March the 17th, 2023. We are in a perilous time, and nothing could be more important than our privacy and our freedom to think, speak, and associate with those with whom we choose. In this contentious time, we have government entities like CISA declaring our thoughts are part of the federal government's cognitive infrastructure, and our communications are potential cyber attacks on the homeland. So with that in mind, our Congress is facing a decision to renew the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, and specifically Section 702 of the FISA. Yet on the opposite side of privacy, our so-called woke betters are constantly bombarding us with messaging about their sexual orientation, their racial diversity, and how we must have these so-called minority groups overrepresented in political and public life. Quote unquote, diversity is our strength. We hear over and over again. I'm going to show how perhaps the left is interested in crushing our privacy because it allows them to continue to flaunt these absurd claims about diversity. And once we cover these topics, I'm going to have a short session with my buddy, Steve Friend, coming in to call some balls and strikes on some of the information that has come out of the Proud Boys trial. So stick around for that. But first, just a quick word from our sponsor. We want to thank Patriot Coolers for sponsoring the Kyle Serapin Show this month. I carried their first generation tumbler on surveillance in a dozen states since 2017. Right now, you can use promo code Kyle to get 10% off and free shipping over $50. Now, we all want a hot or a cold beverage to stay that way, hot or cold. These days, I carry a 30-ounce tumbler for smoothies, and I have a 19-ounce coffee mug on my desk when I'm recording. If I'm out with my kids, I've got the one-gallon jug so I can refill their water bottles and keep them cool. Spring is upon us, and summer is coming soon. If you are in the market for a high-quality piece of outdoor gear that's going to last and support your values, please check out PatriotCoolers.com for either a hard or soft-sided cooler. If you're doing an RV trip, you're floating the river, making a long Costco run, or you're sitting on surveillance, check out PatriotCoolers.com. Your purchase is going to support our show and disabled vets. Patriot Coolers has given nearly $400,000 to updating the homes of post-9-11 disabled vets so that they can enjoy the liberty and freedom at home that they fought for over there. Again, use promo code KYLE for 10% off. And shipping over $50 is always free. Thanks for checking them out, y'all. All right, so let's talk about Section 702. There is nothing more boring but nothing more scary than the FISA Section 702. And when I say it was boring, I mean I spent two years dealing with this thing. It is an awful entity, and it is very difficult for most people to fathom. Um, one of the things that we know about 702 is that it is a tool that is almost impossible for law enforcement to use in a law enforcement way. And making that available to the FBI is the reason um, I've made some whistleblower disclosures about how it shouldn't be a tool that's available to folks in that sort of um, that venue. Um, it's not a new topic to be contentious. Senator Mike Lee has been uh, someone who has called for its abolition. And luckily, um, Re Representative Jim Jordan is actually doing the same thing at this point. Uh, hopefully, because of some of the information that I've shared with this staff. So I want to bring up a quick article here, and we're going to discuss how and why it cannot be used in a way that is even remotely appropriate. Uh, this is one from a company or a, a website called cyberscoop.com. I'm not familiar with them before, but I was reading about it. And um, the, the stuff I read in there is 
is worth reporting on. This is an older article coming back from about two weeks ago, and it says the White House faces deep, uh, deeply skeptical Congress as it advocates for a controversial surveillance tool. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act expired in December, perhaps the most precarious position it's been in yet. Uh, thank God for that, by the way. It should be in a precarious position because it can't be used in a way that is uh, remotely appropriate. Um, so this article, this is written by Tanya Riley, uh, again, at CyberScoop. And it says, as the Biden administration begins its campaign to urge Congress to renew a controversial surveillance provision that authorizes intelligence agencies to carry out warrantless data collection. This is going to be the real thing that we're talking about here, warrantless. It will face a skeptical Congress where the distrust of government spying runs deep. Uh, FISA 702, which was saved from the brink of sunsetting by Congress twice before, is in perhaps its most precarious position yet. As we said, leading House Republicans, including House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican Ohio, have singled strong opposition to renewing this surveillance. Uh, meanwhile, of course, the Democrats have to just contest everything that they're doing. So House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, voted against reauthorization in 2018, uh, while other Democrats made it clear that it would be something that they support. Look, the 702 is one of those things that most people have no idea what they're talking about. I'm fairly confident people in Congress don't really understand how it works. So I'm going to try to explain it to you in a way that makes sense. And then I'm going to give you an analogy that should make you very uncomfortable with how it works. So 702 is a kind of a bizarre entity where it's collected by the NSA, but it's used by the FBI uh, when we request access to it. Um, when I saw it, it was in a position or it was coming out of a software that was called DWS. I don't know if it's the same one anymore. It doesn't really matter. It grabbed whatever it could. Anything that touched American phone lines and wires was something that we had the potential of having access to. Now, uh, rarely did we get phone calls on it. That wasn't very common. What we got oftentimes was email. We got uh, Skype calls, anything that was kind of a digital nature. But the primary thing that I saw were emails. And the way that 702 works is you have to nominate a potential foreign adversary, someone who is either connected to a foreign intelligence surveillance, or rather a foreign intelligence um, state-sponsored entity, You know, whether they're a spy or whether they're co-opted by this group. They have to come from one of our threat countries. And then they have to not be in the United States. So that's a really big and important part of it. If I had, for example, a spy from Russia and that person had been nominated for 702 coverage and we were collecting on them using fill-in-the-blank email services that are based in the United States, doesn't really matter which ones. And then that person were to get on a plane from Moscow and fly and land at Dulles. The minute that I knew that they were in U.S. airspace or that they touched down in Dulles, I would have to discontinue the collection of 702. And I'd have sort of a blank spot. Now they could use their email all they wanted inside the United States and we wouldn't have access to it in theory. And then when they left, then we could. But here's the screwy thing about that. When you're in the United States doing your emails on, let's say Gmail or something like that, they stay on Gmail. Like I guess they could delete them. Um, but mostly people just archive and leave stuff because they don't know they're nominated for this type of coverage. So they would come to the United States, we wouldn't be able to look at it, and then they would leave, and then we'd be able to look at it, and we'd see what they did while they are in the United States. That's problem number one. I don't know how to fix that or if we should fix it, but it is something that uh, is difficult to handle under the way that the, the regulations work. The second part of it is, who are we most interested in? Do I really care what, let's say, a Russian businessman is doing that has some sort of connections to the intelligence services 
uh, FSB or GRU or whatever, do I really care what that person is doing if they're going to be in Russia and they're going to be working out of Russia and I'm not going to be able to see them in the United States or do anything about it? Well, as a law enforcement officer in the United States, I'm most interested in people who are betraying my country and doing things that are active in my country. So if they're sharing information or trying to gain information or buy intelligence information from someone here, that's far more interesting to me. So that's what I would be looking for in that type of coverage. At least that's what a logical you know, route to conclude the, the value of that intelligence collection would be. And yet, if I go looking for Americans, specifically, that's called reverse targeting. And reverse targeting is actually outlawed inside federal law, and I cannot do it. It's expressly forbidden to use the tool the way that it is most valuable to law enforcement. So that makes you wonder, what is the purpose of it? And I don't know. I don't know the answer, and I used it for two straight years. And I'm a pretty bright guy. Um, when I asked people what our job was and why we gathered intelligence, the information that I got from the assistant special agent in charge of uh, counterintelligence that I answered to in Washington, D.C., which is the flagship of counterintelligence in the United States. There are more embassies and consulates and so on, more foreign actors in Washington, D.C. than anywhere else that matters, with the exception of maybe New York. And if they didn't know how to answer it other than say, if we're looking for intelligence, what are we going to do with it? Well, then we'll know more things. And I said, no, that's not what we're going to do. That's what we're going to have. That's what we're going to know. What are we going to do with the information? And they said, we're going to use it to get more information. Now, if you're an action-oriented person, and most special agents in the FBI are, they're sort of operations-driven, they're not analytical types per se, although there's a fair number of those growing, I would say, in that cadre now, but most of them uh, come out of a background of wanting to do investigations, of wanting to find out who's the bad guy, who's betraying our country, and how do we stop them. And yet we're not allowed to use that tool in that way. That should trouble you in many, many respects. And here's the analogy that I like to use. Imagine if you were a TSA officer, and uh, let's say you were good at your job, and you were really interested in protecting the American homeland from another 9-11, and no one's going to sneak anything like a weapon onto an aircraft on your watch. Okay, so that's a fair thing that you could do, and you're given some tools, and some of those tools are an x-ray to go through all the bags, and one of them is a metal detector or a body scan that all the people have to walk through. So let's say you're on the body scan, and your job on any particular day is to make sure that no people walk through your checkpoint with a weapon that they're going to put on a plane. And you're going to use the body scan tool. But what you're told is, is that you cannot use the body scan tool to look for weapons. It's only to scan, for, scan people's bodies. No further information, what its actual purpose is. You're just doing it because that's the job. But you're also tasked with making sure there's no weapons on the plane. What are the odds that you're going to be able to ignore the weapons that you see that show up on the body scan? And if that rhetorical question sounds absurd, that's how absurd Section 702 is when it comes to allowing the FBI to use it. It doesn't make any sense to give them a tool and tell them it can only be used for information purposes and not to identify, not to identify uh, potential subjects. So you should be very concerned about what that looks like and why that is a thing that is available out there. Um, this has got some additional coverage here. I found another article that comes from Slate Magazine. I don't want you to think I only look at right-wing sources, although I often do. Um, they're the ones that seem to have more in common with my perspective, but let's hear what other people have to say as well. This is uh, another article that's written by a guy named Fred Kaplan, 
knowing what you just know now that I've explained to you about 702. And uh, let's let's take a look at this article, which is entitled Why Biden Wants to Keep That the law that allows NSA mass surveillance and why Republicans want to kill it. Like, why is this even a public, uh, a partisan issue is beyond me. But uh, again, Fred Kaplan reporting a couple days ago, this was uh, just at the beginning of the month, March 1st. And it says a debate is erupting in Congress over whether to renew or repeal a law that officials say is vital to com- combating terrorism, cybercrime, and disruptive foreign espionage, but others decry as a violation of the Americans' civil liberties. Now, once again, we can't use it to actually target people who are involved in espionage. And the espionage only works if there's two parts to the coin. One is a foreign actor that's incentivizing somebody. And two is the person that actually has the information to give to them. We can't go after number two. We can only identify number one and track what they're doing. And then we're supposed to imagine that the other part doesn't exist. It's completely antithetical to any realistic understanding of how to use this tool. But so be it. So uh, continuing on to the piece here, the law section of 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act allows the National Security Agency to intercept communications of foreigners, even if that means tapping into network or servers that are based on U.S. soil without a warrant. That's the big piece. It goes on and talks about Edward Snowden revealing some of the stuff in 2013. Uh, next paragraph down here, subsequent analysis revealed that the program was really aimed at foreigners on foreign soil, but that some Americans did get swept up in the gigantic data suck. And this occurred mainly as an unavoidable consequence of internet technology, although it was sometimes the result of bureaucratic overstepping, not so much by the NSA, here it is, but rather by the FBI. We learned that there were about 3 million queries of this database that were not authorized under law, and yet uh, there was no request for them to be authorized after the fact. We found that out a little bit later on. I think that should be a big problem for people. People should understand that this is not how it's supposed to work, but there's no real way to use it in a like in a way that makes sense as an FBI agent. And so they're given this tool and they don't know how to use it legally. And so, of course, they're going to use it in a way that's inappropriate. Um, that should bother you, but it's not necessarily an indictment of the people that are doing the tool because I don't know how to train someone to do that in a way that makes sense. So it says, the revelations of FBI abuse abuse have turned many uh, Republicans against the program in keeping with their general hostility towards the FBI for its investigations, which they see as politically motivated. Um, They are politically motivated. That shouldn't surprise anybody here. Of former President Trump. It's not about Trump. It really isn't. Trump, uh, the investigation and the Miralago raid were symptoms of a much broader problem with the FBI, which is that it is not being run in a way that is constitutional and it's not being run in a way that is apolitical. Um, if you follow this podcast, you already know much about that. All right. Unless Congress votes to extend Section 702 by the end of the year, it expires. So we're going to have a like, kind of a hard fought uh, discussion about this for a while, it sounds like. The Biden administration is pushing hard for its renewal. It's really strange. Why would they want to maintain this thing that they were against a little while ago and that their uh, House Minority Leader was against? And it's because it's about power. I think it's a lot about power, and it gives you a lot of ability to target people, including your political enemies. So it says this week, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Director of National Intelligence, also known as the DNI, Avril Haines, we're going to be hearing more about Avril Haines for a while, I'm pretty sure, sent a letter to Congress urging, urging the reauthorization as a top legislative priority and offering classified briefings to anyone who doubts it. Haines will be testifying in open hearings before the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees. That already happened. Uh, this is obviously written, like I said, two weeks ago. Um, so then they talk about PRISM, which is some of the stuff that came out from Snowden. The implications of intelligence gathering were profound ever since digital devices supplanted telephones, radio signals, and microwave transmissions. The NSA has been having a hard time 
monitoring foreign communications, which is and was the nation, uh, the agency's primary uh, mission. I may actually do another uh, little segment at some point in the near future with my friend George Hill, uh, FBI whistleblower who has gone forward and testified in front of Congress, and we'll specifically focus on 702 and what it does and what it doesn't do. But I think that you'll find that my analysis of it is pretty accurate. George had more time with it, and he also had time at the NSA. So maybe he can shed light on some of the value that it can add in the true and purely intelligence function. But when it comes to law enforcement, it's incredibly dangerous. And the reason why the, the second piece of it that people are not familiar with, and I was in a Twitter space the other day talking about this, there's a concept known as parallel construction. And parallel construction, it was brought up and it was misunderstood by the individual who was talking about it on the space, uh, whose name escapes me at this point. But parallel construction is the idea that you learn something in one way, and then you build the, uh, the evidence of it in another way. Now, the problem is, is once you know that something is there, you can almost always figure out a way to find it in a legal way that is different. So the example is this. Um, I find out that uh, fill-in-the-blank person, person X, is involved in some sort of espionage-type activity or illicit foreign contact for cash and information and so on, all the sort of hallmarks of espionage. And we find out that that person is involved in that through a FISA, through 702, for example. And it's coming in through emails on a public server somewhere, blah, 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 whatever that may be. Once that happens, now I know that person is identified. So first of all, I didn't even know who person X was until I had access to it. But now that I know who person X is, I can do a deep dive in person X's finances. I can do things called national security letters. I can request bank records, uh, toll records, and so on. Now, all of these things may be in the national security realm where I'm literally only building an intelligence case, a counterintelligence case at that. But when I have them and I know that they exist and I know that they're damning, I can turn around and I can bring a potential indictment to a grand jury by going through and asking for subpoenas. So if we go to the grand jury, we say, look, there's an allegation that this person is involved in this thing. We can't tell you why, blah, blah, blah. And we go and we say, we'd like to see their finance records. We'd like to see this because we'd like to try to establish whether or not they're receiving money and this and that. And then we can go and we can rebuild all the national security letter subpoenas on the other side, on the criminal side, which is a totally different animal. And we do it through legal process that we don't have to disclose the secret and otherwise um, non-admissible, uh, non-warranted you know, type searches. And I can build it all up. That's parallel construction. So I have a case over here on the Intel side and I build it up in the same side or in the same way on a criminal side. Once you've done that, you know, once you know something, you can't unknow it as a criminal investigator. It's not like one side does it and they just say, hey, by the way, check out person X. It's the same person that can do the same cases. So parallel construction is the danger. It's the thing that leaves us in a really uh, sort of nasty spot. And we can't have 702 and still have this sort of sense of privacy and freedom that most people have. And 702 is is not the ex parte hearing in front of the FISA court that many people might be familiar with. This is the sort of thing that we heard about with President Trump. People got out there and they, you know, they lied about it and all this kind of thing. No, um, 702 was written up very, very quickly, and it's proposed by a special agent at the front lines. You know, if we want to cover somebody down. I, I nominate them and identify them as a frontline GS-13 or a GS-10 special agent, and then it gets approved by a supervisor and it goes up and maybe like an, like an ASAC, a GS-15, or maybe the SES does, but it's not leaving the office and it comes back down and then we get it going and it can happen in a couple of days. It can happen in shorter than that. And it only takes maybe 
an hour or two to write up the justification for it. So it's a much lower burden than what we would call the full FISA, which is on a, you know, a noted individual that's domestic and uh, dealing with a foreign entity where you have to go in front of a FISA court and you have to argue the probable cause and actually get the warrant. This is not that sort of thing. This is a warrantless search. There's no doubt about it because we're theoretically looking at non-U.S. citizens, not on U.S. soil, and not therefore protected by a lot of the stuff that would otherwise protect them. Uh, truly troubling. And so you wonder what in the world is the opposite side of that? Uh, for me, and I'm making an interesting connection here, but bear with me. I think there's an interesting connection to the absolute opposite side of that coin, which is the sort of gross transparency about the most personal things that anybody could expose, which is sort of the leftist identi identity politics game. So maybe that makes some sense. Maybe it doesn't. But when we start seeing people push the opposite side, well, why is this thing out there? Like, is it because they want to remove our privacy and that's why they want to continually expose weird things about their own privacy? I don't know, but it's a thought process. Um, Douglas Murray wrote a piece in the New York Post that I want to expose a little bit about. And like I said, the flip side of the coin of us being able to keep things secret is people who are sharing things about their sexual proclivities and their racial identities and grievances and their mental illness. I keep seeing people putting strange things like, you know, that they have PTSD out in public. Like, this is nobody's business. Um, this is not something that you need to be sharing with strangers on the internet. Like, what are you thinking about? Or they'll tell you about their other, you know, the fact that they're bipolar. Like I saw a guy the other day who was listing this in his bio. What is the upside to that? Like, are you warning me or are you just out there bragging about things that have nothing to do with anything I can understand? Um, and I'm going to go with the, it's probably the latter. So in this piece that Douglas Murray said this, he's blaming the uh, diversity and equity pushes on what's starting to push and potentially crash our economy. As many people are aware, the Silicon Valley uh, Bank had a failure and the risk manager was more interested in whether or not she was promoting lesbian causes and, uh, you know, racial and equity and these kind of things than looking for actual risk. So I'm going to give this piece a little bit of coverage and we're going to talk about a couple of the little strange things out there, things that they're putting at risk that are beyond just the financial system, um, including the FBI, of course, why not? Uh, so putting diversity and equity first nearly crashed the economy. Again, a piece by Douglas Murray, and we'll quote the piece here. Several years back, I, being Douglas, asked what it would take to halt the diversity, inclusion, equity, obsession in America. What would it take to get back to excellence and competence as the only criteria for employment, the so-called uh, meritocracy, right? W what would it take for that? So he says, perhaps it would require the falling or bridges to start falling down. Uh, and then he suspects that uh, if they did, certain people would claim that they had fallen because of structural racism. He's probably correct. That's pretty sad and funny. And then in this week, we got a good reminder of how over-tolerant we have been of this insane anti-excellence agenda. Because although bridges have not yet started to collapse, the banks have. And one of the reasons that banks in question prioritized equity over excellence. The DIE, I've always heard it called uh, DEI. So I don't know why he says it this way, but maybe there's a, there's a reason that he's saying it as the DIE agenda, which is quite funny, uh, constitutes an absolute obsession with the exact representation or preferably over-representation as noted of women in senior positions, including board positions in American companies. This obsession with female representation is only an issue with high status jobs, of course, board seats, Hollywood stars, high paying things, so on. Um, there's a picture here of this, this uh, woman, Jay, uh, I'm going to approach you her last name. So Ursapa, 
who was the uh, the head of risk management, read the and ran a program on pronouns, gender, and a blog emphasizing emphasizing mental health awareness for LGBTQ plus youth. Uh, again, I don't I don't know why the mental health is always thrown in there, but they act like this is like a, a new minority group. Like it's it's strange because it certainly doesn't seem to um, affect their interest in including veterans who suffer from you know at least the normal amount of mental health issues after dealing with uh, the military for a number of years, but that's not what they're about. So it says, there's no movement that I'm aware of. This is again, Douglas Murray speaking, that is pushing for equal female representation among road layers in America. Uh, But for at least 15 years, diversity has been everything. Goes on to talk about how this woman, Jay, is the head of um, this risk management for SVB, didn't do her job. And then she would talk about what it was like to be a queer person of color and a first-generation immigrant on a working-class background that was working for this major bank. Um, apparently, what it was was about incompetence and it didn't do its job. So be it. Uh, so she spends all this time sort of interested in her preferred causes, and the result is a pretty, you know, pretty predictable, which is that she wasn't doing the job of risk management. And then we watched a bank basically fail in front of our eyes. Kind of a funny story too, is one of my best buddies who I grew up with, his dad, I think is the longest serving federal employee at the FDIC and uh, hasn't had a solid bank failure in a while, at least not one of this priority. He's kind of like the most senior guy. And I think he's been out of the field for a little bit. And, but when we were kids, he used to run around all the time. And we'd always wonder where the heck did, uh, where did Bob go off to? And he would always tell us he was a spy because he's a funny guy. And he looks like a tall, kind of nerdy accountant. Um, he's one of my favorite people. He's incredibly lovable and, and very, uh, very funny. And he wears little round glasses and has a beard. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's tall, kind of athletic guy, but, uh, but that doesn't necessarily look, he looks like an accountant and he was sort of a man who did that sort of work. So anyway, he, uh, he got shipped off to Boston to go look at, uh, the Silicon Valley bank failure and some of the branch work out there. And anyway, he got called into action because of this. It was a priority because Bob, unlike the people that were running this bank is a high level professional at the thing that he does. He is probably one of the best in that sphere. And sure enough, you bring out the best when people start failing and breaking things down. So um, it is an interesting sort of issue that we're dealing with, but um, it's not the only sphere where I feel like this administration is trying to overrepresent people that have no business being in positions. And uh, obviously Silicon Valley has been quite woke and, and, uh, and been very focused on these things for quite a long time. We're hearing that the Biden administration has the most representation of LGBTQ plus people, whatever that is, 14 plus percent of the cabinet now and high level uh, political appointed positions are in there. That clearly is an overrepresentation of uh, who these people are in the general population, but that doesn't stop Biden from getting involved in that. And um, it's also not the only spectrum where they're willing to push these people forward. So I'm going to talk about the FAA, which I think is interesting. That affects probably more of us than Silicon Valley Bank. Not many of us probably were invested in there, or had money there. If you are a dot-com startup type and uh, you happen to listen to this podcast, feel free to hit us up in the comments and tell us otherwise that you are also deeply offended that I was not considering you as uh, one of my audience. But unlikely, I think. What's also interesting, though, is that it doesn't just matter to that. And so this is a little bit more recent. This is actually coming from yesterday on Fox News. And they're talking about a uh, the number of GOP pilots in Congress, which is a fair number. I think it's like 14 different aviators of the you know 50% of the House are concerned that uh, the Biden administration and and Joe Biden in particular has nominated a director of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, 
who they describe as, quote unquote, entirely unqualified. Uh, the gentleman's name is Phil Washington. And uh, there's a little picture of him here. If you're looking on the Rumble channel, you can see it says he's the chief executive officer of the Denver International Airport. Well, that sounds like somebody who has something to do with aviation, but only superficially because he has no aviation experience whatsoever. He served 24 years in the United States Army. He was an enlisted guy and uh, left and retired as a uh, as a sergeant major. So fair play there. Um, but he's not a pilot. He has zero aviation experience. He was never tied to an aviation unit in the army. And uh, they claim that he's entirely unqualified to lead a federal ag aviation agency that's responsible for keeping our public safe and flying. Now, I think I remember at one point, uh, there's hundreds of millions of people that fly in the United States every year. It's probably a lot of the same people, it turns out, especially if you're used to doing these commuter flights, you see the same faces are going the same places. But uh, unless you're Chris Ray, Chris Ray, he just flies private. But uh, it is a thing that many people expect that if you jump on a plane that you are going to be dealing with an aviation administration that's funded by our federal government that's going to maintain safety. And there's certain standards and qualifications, um, including air traffic control, and there's standards for pilots and so on. So it's interesting that we're going to have a nomination for this guy. And this is the the thing that the, the aviators in Congress wrote. They said, quote, the FAA cannot afford to be led by someone who needs on-the-job training, especially at a time when our aviation system is facing tremendous safety challenges, such as multiple near misses by airliners and the first nationwide ground stop of aircraft since 9-11. Um, they are having a difficult time staffing air traffic controllers. They're having a difficult time getting pilots because of the mandates that went out. And a number of pilots are both health conscious and um, interested in their own medical freedom. There's an entire group that I joined up with that uh, that does that kind of full time now. It's called Move Freely America. And they, they bring up all the issues about, you know, for flight crew, this is not just the pilots, but also the crew that are in there. Um, so why are we trying to put somebody out there that has no experience? And for those of you who are not watching on the Rumble channel, I'm going to read you from the remarks as they were talking about who was ready to lead. This says, uh, this is remarks that were from the commerce.senate.gov. This is Senator Maria Cantwell's opening remarks talking about the confirmation hearing, or at least the uh, the questioning hearing of this gentleman, Philip Washington. So she talks about uh, three years ago, Congress said there needs to be some aviation process and there needs to be some fa oversight and i've worked with my colleagues and blah 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 blah. Uh, we worked with the tragedies of the 737 max and tried to help figure out what's going to be landmark safety you know legislation we are going to try to keep uh everything safe the faa is a very complex group they have forty-five thousand employees different lines of business day in and day out it goes on and on and on and we're like okay so who is this guy and why is it relevant and then you get to the point where it says after he retired from the military, 24 years in, um, he, here you go. He said he had a great career and we appreciate that he was a 24 veteran, 24 year veteran of the United States army, where he rose to the rank of command sergeant major. So he was, uh, the top non-commissioned officer rank, uh, that a list of soldier can get to, and that he would be the first African American to serve as the FAA administrator. What does that have to do with anything? You wonder. First of all, are we still keeping track of these firsts? Like, does it, is there any reason why anybody should care about whether you are the first black guy to do anything at this point? Like all the things that are important have been done. I'm pretty sure. And now we've got this. And they said, uh, here's his, here's his history of why. So since 2000, when he retired, so this guy retired in 2000 after 24 years, uh, he was probably 18 when he enlisted. So that put him at like 42 years old. He joined, uh, the Denver regional district, RTD 
And then that was a, uh, a rapid transit sort of situation where they had annual ridership over 40 million. And in Denver, he implemented the nation's first and only $2.2 billion public transit, private public equity partnership called Eagle P3. Um, the basic connection that he has to the aviation world is that in 2021, he became the CEO of the Denver International Airport, which may be the third business airport in the world. But um, what does it have to do with flying? It actually turns out that running the airport has almost nothing to do with flying because the flying is actually managed by air traffic control, by the pilots, by the airlines, by the people that actually do aviation. You know, his thing is that he's got a bunch of people that come in and out. They've got a security protocol. They've got baggage, uh, which used to actually chop baggage up. And end of the day, you know, the man is responsible for doing something that is like running a, a business, but it's not running an airline and it's not running aviation. So when we're worried about this sort of thing, it makes me nervous that we're just interested in the color of his skin, that he's a, a political Democrat. He's in a, you know, a blue state at this point, which Denver has become that, or at least Colorado is because it's controlled by Denver. And his qualifications have nothing to do with aviation whatsoever. I'm actually a better qualified person for FAA director because I'm actually a credentialed air traffic controller and I have no business running the FAA, but I would be a more, more appropriate pick and probably have less, uh, at least on the Republican side who care about safety. I at least know what the safety issues are. I've run radar. Um, I've run visual. Um, I've done tower controls. So that is what it is. Um, the last little thing that we're going to talk about here is, of course, the diversity and equity push that happens in the FBI because we can't have anything without the FBI also jumping into the game. And so let's talk about it today or yesterday, rather, it is. Um, I tweeted out this sort of horrible picture, and I'm going to share it with you right now because what are you going to do? Um, this is a picture that was sent to me, and I know it's a real picture because um, I know people that uh, have sent it before, but it was just recently sent to me again by an ATF agent because uh, we have this chat group where we are constantly trying to decide who is the worst. And I'll tell you who the worst is. It's almost always the FBI now. <laughs> it's just it's just what it is. So the FBI is trying to run to the bottom and people started asking me because it's gotten 40 plus thousand views at this point. I think Dinesh D'Souza may, may have retweeted it. Uh, people are trying to find out, hey, is this the real thing? Like, is this a real picture? You know. And then the most salient question came up that I thought was the most important. So if you're not seeing the picture right now, it's a bunch of FBI personnel wearing shirts that say FBI on the back in rainbow lettering, carrying an enormous American flag done with rainbow colors. And so the question popped up and it made me consider this. Someone asked me the question. I don't have an answer. Did the FBI ever force employees to show up wearing American flag, flag pride t-shirts, you know, with uh, the American flag striped across the logo of the FBI for President's Day, for Fourth of July, for Veterans Day, for any of the American holidays that we would all understand to be pretty non-denominational issues. And uh, as far as I know, I've never heard of an, an FBI agent being forced to go to any of those things, at least not in a uniform. I have had to work them in covert fashion, and I've had to work them in um, overt fashion, but I've never been told show up and march in a parade of any kind to be proud of America. But we are sending people out to be part of these pride parades. And it's not, this is not the only instance that happened. So someone asked me, is this even real? And the answer is, of course it is. And that means that they're not following some of the things that I've been putting out. So here's some more stuff that's coming out. This is from a FBI training 
Um, this person tweeted a, a, a gif of a cat that is saying, I can't even process this. This is an FBI training that was put out in, I want to say April of 2021. They actually pulled it down because it was so tragically bad and it was poorly reviewed by FBI personnel at the time. And this one is a slide that says, personal beliefs, focus on appropriate behavior and not your beliefs. Refer to the FBI's non-discrimination policy, core values, and the mission to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. Focus on accomplishing the mission. And the picture is a bunch of sort of like tubby looking people, different color skin, like that matters. I'm sure that's part of the reason why they did it. They're all holding like rainbow stuff at a table that has the FBI logo, fbijobs.gov and fidelity, bravery, and integrity on it. They're on some waterfront. I don't know what city this is in. It doesn't really matter. They're out there promoting the uh, diversity, equity, and agenda issue. Here's where it got really spicy in that training. Knowledge check number three. This is 52 slides long, by the way. There, uh, If you want to go and try and dig it up, it's in either the Daily Caller or the New York Post, maybe in October or something like that. I exposed it to them. It says, quote, Graham is new to the division and uses the pronouns they, them, their. And then the answer that somebody filled in for this one was wrong. And it says, incorrect. FBI employees should always use the name and pronoun that transgender person uses. Repeated intentional refusal to use an individual's chosen name and pronoun could be considered harassment and is contrary to the goal of the FBI treating all employees with dignity and respect. Such conduct should be reported in accordance with the existing FBI policy. And you go, is that enough? No, it's not enough. Where can I find more information? Maybe you, our listener, maybe you, our Rumble viewer, would like more information about this as well. Well, here's where you can find it. You can email the Bureau Equality Program, which is bureauequality at fbi.gov on UNET, which is the unclassified email. So feel free. If you feel like you want to reach out and know more about the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda for the LGBTQ plus IA whatever groups within the FBI, by all means. And if you're a government employee and you want to know more and you have access to the uh, the Simbernet side, you can go B-E, Bravo Echo, at FBI.sgov.gov. Those people who know how to use that know how to use that. Tells you that there's many all kinds of uh, local chapters and issues and that uh, you can use those and they can be apparently accessed while you're at work. Why not? There's another thing on here. It's a slide that says the, the extra mile Make your support visible, continue self-educating, participate in regional pride events, and support field office LGBTQ plus events. I thought we had a separation of church and state. I thought that we weren't supposed to be forcing a specific secular religion on the employees, but we are doing this thing. And uh, if you're not watching on Rumble again, there is a picture on this slide, the extra mile that shows... Again, a bunch of very unimpressive people, most of them women, some of them with multicolor hair, some of them with significant extra body weight, and they are marching in a pride parade uh, strewn with rainbow flags, including stickers on their bodies and rainbow socks and FBI t-shirts. And a couple of them are carrying a banner that says Federal Bureau of Investigation, www.fbijobs.gov. And then the most fun part for me is the hashtag unexpected agent. Uh, unexpected agent is the um, is the the push that they're having in order to recruit people who think that they would not otherwise qualify as FBI agents. They wouldn't qualify as FBI agents probably only a few years ago, and many of you would be disgusted to know that they are. The last little piece here I'll show is it from FBI Jobs, March fifteenth. You just uh, you can't help it. The Jacksonville field office is holding yet another diversity agent recruiting event, a DAR event, D-A-R, 
And uh, it shows a black lady and a white lady talking about, I guess, becoming FBI agents. Again, this hashtag, unexpected agents. Pretty awful and pretty strange. But this is the thing that they want to do. This is what they're going to uh, be pushing on us. And so that is the thing that we have to deal with. Um, Speaking of unexpected agents... Speaking of people from the Jacksonville field office, I'm going to be bringing on the interview that I did with Stephen Friend. We're going to be talking about the balls and strikes when it comes to the Proud Boys. Totally unrelated to this stuff, but at least a little bit more uplifting as you go into the weekend. And uh, stand by for a little interview from our friend, Stephen Friend. All right, I've got my guest, Steve Friend here. And Steve has some experience with criminal process as an FBI agent for eight years, a cop before that, but uh, more than most uh, FBI agents, he had the pleasure, the benefit, the experience of working Indian country crimes, which means he had close to what, 200 criminal prosecutions? Is that correct, Steve? Yeah, I opened about 200 cases, about 150 uh, arrests. 150 arrests, 200 cases. And um, how many of those did you end up taking to trial, do you think? Uh, six or seven in my seven years. Okay. So about so, one a year. And, and generally speaking, most people plea in the federal system. That's kind of the way the system is set up. Um, there's a couple of things that came to light in some of the discovery that was turned over by the Washington field office in one of the Proud Boy cases. Now, Julie Kelly has been pretty um, astute and accurate on analyzing a lot of this stuff and getting it out to the public. But there's a few things I think that are a little bit miscon- misconstrued, maybe a little bit inaccurate. So I want to run this by you. One of the things that people are getting really riled up about is the FBI destroying evidence. Does the FBI destroy evidence as a regular uh, course of business? Uh, not while the case is open. Okay. But, and, but if you saw something on a link chat stating how, you know, the boss is telling me I got to go out and destroy 338 items of evidence, what, what would your initial reaction to that be? Uh, I would hope that that case was closed and the sentence for the individual uh, was was complete or maybe there was no prosecution done. But if it, there was ever a situation where even the person was convicted of a crime and sitting in prison, the arrest uh, eliminating evidence is a, a no-go. And why is that? What What is the uh, the process that, that sort of governs that interaction? The Justice for All Act, which essentially guarantees anybody that's convicted of crime this opportunity to appeal um, there's a there's a substantial amount of time that has to pass and elapse before this uh, appeal process window uh, closes and then they, they kind of have to just take their time. All right. So um, if they served a sentence, if they were convicted and the sentence is over, we can destroy it, correct? Yes. What about if the AUSA declines? Yes, but there's also the question of is the evidence something that needs to be returned um, or if it's something that maybe uh, we're going to have and you'd know more about this than me, if it's a, an intelligence gathering case, uh, we're going to spin off about it. Maybe we're going to preserve it for that purpose. Sure. Yeah, generally speaking, I don't know that there's a lot of the stuff in there. Give people an example of one of the items that might be uh, destroyed that nobody would think twice about destroying. And it sounds like it's a big deal, destroying evidence, but the evidence might be something so invaluable or what we would call de minimis that it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, it could be stuff that you created yourself. Like if you took photographs, uh, had an audio recording, there's no sense in having a, a disc sitting around. You can just dispose of it that way. Uh, physical evidence, if you have a, a bloody sheet or a piece of clothing that after a certain amount of time, what are you going to do? Return a, you know, an old sock to somebody? doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You can uh, destroy it. Okay. And so there's also some, depending on the, the field office, I think, but they'll describe 
destroy things that are uh, biological tainted evidence. So if it's got biohazards or blood, or if it's got, you know, um, some other kind of fluid on there, sometimes they'll toss those things out too. Yeah. Yep. And, and drugs, don't forget, we have to have the big giant drug burn. Tell people about what that looks like. Cause that, uh, that's another thing that is commonly destroyed and they, they schedule it every month uh, or a lot of places will schedule it on a regular basis to do that. Yeah, it's it's controlled environment, and they obviously have to make sure that there's no uh, fumes going into anywhere that's populated, as we've seen some of these reporters that are sitting outside that will catch a whiff and then suffer the effects of it. That's but, wild. Uh, I never they will I make, didn't know that happened. <laughs> they will make sure that, uh, yeah, it's seen secure, and they'll do a controlled burn uh, to make sure that, that uh, those materials are destroyed properly. When you were working in Indian country, did you see people collecting things before your time that were completely illogical and then you were burdened with getting rid of them? Like I, I remember seeing a case where there was like 50 individual beer cans that had been collected for some reason and a piece of a screen door and then like the headliner from an 88 Jeep Cherokee. And it's like, we, and a bag of glass from a windshield, like stuff like that. Was that common in your yes. uh, RA as yes, well? Yes. And I mean, I was inheriting these cases or you'd be contacting and the sentence would be done. Um, I was actually given the knife that was used for a, for a murder and was told to return it to the family uh, of the victim because it was their kitchen knife. Did you reach out and see if they wanted that back or if they wanted it destroyed? Some people want no, it back. I, I, I articulated uh, to my higher ups that that might be a bad idea because the guy was out of jail and there might be some sort of like, I don't know, retribution. Emotional trigger, you what something you got like my that. Family member with. Yeah. Okay. So, so on its face, if somebody said we are going to be um, destroying a, a large number of items of evidence, there are plenty of plausible explanations why that could be correct. Yes. Um, it's not necessarily related to the same case. When people are on Link Chat, can you explain what the Link Chat is? Because there's been a lot of back and forth that I've seen, at least on the Twitter sort of reporter sphere, discussing what it is, and they don't really know because they've never used it. But you and I have. Yeah, it's it's on the secret side, on the red side. Uh, it's think of it as the old school AOL instant messenger, where you have access to anybody who happens to be active on that side um, of the computer systems, and you can just chat back and forth with them, um, and you can preserve those chats if you want, uh, and you can log them onto, uh, load them into a case file if if they're relevant, or it can just be you know, you just chatting with your buddy, hey, how's your day going? And people use it uh, to also have audio conversations with each other. Um, and you can also do video as that, that sort of capability. And it's good for sort of teleconference calls where you don't actually have to get up uh, off your desk and you can talk to a whole bunch of people at the same time. All right. So basically the same thing people are using Skype for, same like we're using here. There's a messaging for function, an audio and a visual. Um, let's say you, you and I didn't meet each other while we worked in the bureau, but if we did, um, I could hit you up on there and ask you something about your kid's sports. I could check in how your wife is doing sick. We could talk about that case that we were thinking about referring off to your office and it would all be in the same chat, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever, you didn't really deal with things that were, that were classified in your casework. So you didn't probably have to deal with them showing up in your link. Is that more or less true? No, no, everything that I was dealing with was unclassified. Um, and yeah, just, it didn't really, it wasn't really relevant to the cases that I was working. However, like every FBI employee, you probably got the marking classified documents thing once a year on the virtual Academy training. Yeah. The portion markings. Yep. Where they, uh, you, you have to go through it and make sure that, you know, what is a secret, no foreign classified law enforcement sensitive. Yep. Very familiar. So one of the, uh, the pushbacks that the DOJ, that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office did in this Proud Boys case, had basically stated that the uh, you know the agent 
incorrectly hid instead of deleted files, didn't select them properly for discovery, and therefore gave a thousand lines of everyday conversation plus a bunch more that may or may not be related to the case. And their argument to try to retrieve all that was it's classified. What do you, how do you, how do you uh, sort that out? Like, does that ring true to you that there's likely a bunch of classified material this woman was uh, discussing with her, her peers? I doubt it because first of all, there's no portion marking, which would indicate that it's classified. Um, but just in light of my experience using that link system, you're not typically having super secret squirrel conversations via link. You would probably move that over into a more secure, uh, secure place to have those conversations and you wouldn't necessarily be, be typing them out. And, uh, I, yeah, I, think I think that's, just... yeah, I think that's the real thing. It's like people are not necessarily typing them out. Although I did cut and paste occasionally, but they would have portion marks from certain documents. If we were trying to get like a linguist, like, Hey, what does this mean? Or mm -hmm. can you give me some context? You could see that being a thing, but yeah, for, for every day, as people can imagine the AOL chat, that's not the way you do it. You usually send an email over and then say, Hey, did you get my email? Do you want to do a link call about it? You had link calls about policy and procedures and case uh, determinations, I imagine, right? Yeah, 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 definitely have those, especially if, you know, you're covering a lead or something like that. You just, it would be sent to you by some individual you had no relationship with and you just want to get some clarity on it. And it's it's always just easier to have that link call and that way you're not trying to fight with cell phone receptions and you can look at the, the case together and then sort of get some clarity. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a, like a collaboration tool between offices. So if someone in DC were to send you a case or a lead saying, hey, would you go interview this person and you get it and you receive it, you could look them up on the link system, dial them up on that uh, that system and then talk about things all the way up to and including secret classifications. So you're pretty covered on most most um, actions you would do in any case. You're not you're going to be in a secured environment where you're not trying to like walk around and have somebody overhear what you're getting involved in. Yeah. 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 I mean, there was always where you'd so you'd think the guy in the cube next to you was just talking to himself and then you realize he had the headset on and he was having a link call with somebody. Fair enough. All right. So uh, some of the things that they, they mentioned, destroying the evidence, we don't really think much about that. The, uh, the possibility that uh, DOJ said that it was all classified, that's probably false. So now we've got one kind of, the attorneys are probably over overreaching on one thing um, and then DOJ is probably overreaching on the other. The last piece on there that Julie Kelly reported and I think this one is probably the most damning to the government's case in the, in the case of the Proud Boys is there is interactions between the case agents. Um, in this case, it's Nicole Miller out of the Washington field office and then another agent who I don't know that we've seen identified. And they're discussing the likely tactics that the defense is going to employ based on listening to jail phone calls between the attorney and the uh and the client who's in jail can you kind of expound on your experience of catching jail phone calls what people do and do not have in like kind of what's in bounds and what's not yeah i mean I've, I've listened to lots of jail phone calls and uh well in my experience i wasn't even able to cheat to listen to uh phone calls between uh, an attorney and a defendant those the jail system would block me from even accessing those they would if you put your you know hovered your mouse over that call it would not uh, be available to select because those are privileged conversations the government's not entitled to those whatsoever uh, but uh, fortunately for us in a lot of these times these these guys would talk to their attorney and then immediately call somebody uh, and get the details of their conversation with their attorney so if we wanted to you know develop some sort of strategy or insight into what the defense was planning to do, we could, but 
and again, that's them just being irresponsible with the, with their phone calls because you pick up that jail phone call and, and it says this is recorded and, and it's available to law enforcement. So if you make that decision, that's on you. All right. I'm going to kind of replay that back at you. If somebody were to call and talk to their attorney, you didn't have access to it at all. You could not listen to it under any circumstances. It was not available to you. However, if that person got off the phone with their attorney, turns around and calls baby's mama, which I'm sure is the, the number one call that that gets done and then you know the attorney said this and i told him this and all these things and then they do like a recap of it that's no longer privileged because they're no longer talking to the attorney and that's how you correct pick that up but if the government um made the argument that every single jail call coming out of the january 6th defendant system in dc has a caveat in order to use that phone it looks like there's a kind of a terms of service on there it's three or four paragraphs if you want to use this thing and one of the lines in there states that you basically give up your right to attorney client privilege do you know if there's ever been any uh case law on that does that seem like a fair play by the government to be able to waive your attorney client privilege just in order to use a phone where you're otherwise on covid lockdown and isolation yeah it sounds completely completely extra constitutional it, it does not sound legit. And especially when you have this this phone to hang over people's heads and you're saying, well, unless you agree to this, then you're not going to be able to talk to your family. I mean, that just is gross, disgusting. And it's definitely uh, I would question the legality of it. I've never seen anything like that. Um, there's just certain rights that you you can't simply just wave away, even if you wanted to. I mean, you can't you have the right to, to liberty. Well, I waive that. I want to be a slave. It. it doesn't work that way. Right. You, you can't waive your right to right. free speech. You can't waive your right to due process necessarily. Like it is part of the due process that you could waive your right to a trial and you could plea, but you can't say I'm fine with the government infringing upon my, my right to due process by doing something else. Yes. Yes. And that's just a dangerous precedent, especially with this, sure. this privilege that you're going to have um, with, you know, with the attorneys, because where does it stop? I mean, well, if you're going to have a conversation with your attorney inside of an FBI facility, then we were, then we're going to record that and uh, we're going to have access to it because you, in order to have, you know, access to the space, you're going to have to agree to that. And, we're, and, we're and we invited you into the space, maybe. Correct. Correct. It's just, it completely, completely entraps these guys. And uh, if they did that, uh, they're, they're going to, going to have some consequences. I would, I would hope. We would hope. Yeah. Maybe not in DC, but in theory, they might have consequences somewhere in, uh, in the judicial system if they end up getting a change of venue. Um, you said you wanted to drop something on me that was a little bit spicy. Uh, sounds like it was written about by Miranda Devine on Thursday afternoon or Thursday during the day. Um, what is it that you found out uh, about your complaint? Because this evolving case of, uh, I've been watching Taibi's feed as well, and it says, cherry-picked is their favorite thing and hand-picked is their other favorite thing. They're hand-picked journalists and uh, cherry-picked and the so-called journalists, so-called whistleblowers is kind of the the uh, the meat of the Democrat argument against your legitimacy. You found out something kind of funky about what's going on at the, what, the Office of the Inspector General? Is that correct? Yep, the DOJ's Office of the Inspector General. Uh, so I, that was one of the offices that I submitted my whistleblower declaration to. Uh, and uh, I received in December a notice from them that they were not going to be investigating the, the matter that I brought forth to them and kind of figured, well, that's that. I'm all done. Uh, and then back in February, went through my in the middle of February, went went to the deposition for the select committee. Uh, and then the Democrats had their strategic coordinated leaks with the media. And one of the details that they said was that the the OIG was refusing to even look at the veracity of my complaint, and and that was sort of one of the uh, the big uh, the big bombs that they threw in my direction. 
Uh, fortunately for me, Jason Foster, Bauer Oversight, uh, has uh, some some contacts and uh, has been pressuring the OIG and finding out, and, uh, and much to the chagrin of the Democrats, uh, the OIG actually before my deposition uh, had agreed to uh, investigate my declaration uh, to speak to me about the details of that and also uh, my uh, retribution that I suffered as a whistleblower. They, they want to schedule an interview with me. Uh, but then the interesting nugget that I have recently learned is that the rejection letter that I initially received, seeing as how that's very inconsistent with what the OIG is telling me now, that is automatically uh, generated by a computer system uh, housed at the OIG, that regardless of what you send in, uh, in order to avoid being accused of ignoring a declaration from a whistleblower, uh, you get the, the, the rejection letter. And then I guess at a later time, they can assess if they want to reopen it. Okay, which... so I'm, I'm going to pair that back again, because that's that sounds craziness. Uh, you were told in deposition that you had not been your complaint had not been selected by the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General to be investigated. That was a period you found out that was not the case, but that was at odds with what you'd gotten in process because you'd gotten a letter stating that they had rejected your investigation or your complaint. And thanks for trying kind of thing. And you yes. found out that that is a a automatically generated sort of compliance mechanism that comes out to every single whistleblower and says, we're not interested in investigating just in case they wanted to follow up on it. At least they know that somebody wrote to them, but they can still go back and investigate that thing. Yes. There's, there's 400 attorneys at the OIG, uh, obviously, you know, limited bandwidth, what you can do. I mean, that seems like a pretty healthy population, but I don't know, you know, the, the quantity of complaints that they get coming in. Uh, but if, you don't have somebody who's an advocate for you who's as dogged as Jason Foster has been for me. I can just see a situation easily arise where you bring a legitimate and maybe a major accusation forward, nothing that's you know, transient and small. Uh, but because you get that letter, you think, well, that's that. I guess I have to find uh, new pastures and you resign and, and walk away. And then maybe months or even years down the road, the OIG contacts you and says, hey, uh, you know, you remember that allegation about, uh, you know, there being major espionage going on in the FBI? We'd like to talk to you about that. And now you've changed and, and disrupted your entire career path, and uh, it's too late for you to really, you know, go back on that. So I, that's, I think yeah, that's wild. That is being a potentially catastrophic problem uh, with the OIG. Have you ever heard of anybody explaining this before, or that do you know anybody that's ever heard this and going like, oh yeah, that makes sense? No, no, I. I blown away i'm i'm just thinking about how many people that uh didn't have a, a jason working for them that this has happened to and uh and you know there's there's a lot of, of serious allegations that um, you know have come come out and maybe they just were never pursued because the person just said like hey look I, it's it's been a year i got a new job you know i've moved i'm not really interested you know kind of f those guys the government can't be fixed i'm just gonna go on to the private sector how often has that happened as a result of this yeah, probably a lot based on what, I mean, there's allegations going in. If they've got 400 attorneys working there and you figure that you've got um, ATF and DEA and the Marshal Service and the FBI and people can make allegations from the inside of the agency, but also from the outside of the agency and mm -hmm. can, can choose to just abandon pushing these things like legal process. ATF just makes me think, what about like, like a John Dodson who comes forward with the Fast and the Furious accusation? What if he just sends that to the OIG and rejected. then they're rejected? And 
Yeah, how corrupt would that would that make you think everything is? It also probably explains why some people choose to take their case to the media, and because what are the what is the way that you can do anything when you're told that the uh, the OIG is not interested in following down your complaint? Like you got no other recourse other than to either go public or shut your mouth and go back, as we used to say in the military, shut up in color. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and then if you go to the media, then that's not one of those one through seven. Uh, uh, aspects to being a whistleblower that's a protected disclosure no so, longer protected after you know, that I, point yeah and so then if they were to terminate you then uh then you're definitely uh on fair grounds probably probably like me yeah. i'm on fair grounds to be terminated at this point doing my thing i am the media i guess so that's right sim so you. are you sim you during the investigation it is yeah sim me for sure give me journalistic protections for my sources which may or may not show up on my podcast uh but i really appreciate you sharing this information with folks i appreciate you sharing your uh, experience because i think it is timely and it's necessary for people to know we're going to call balls and strikes when the fbi has done something we think is wrong we're going to call it out uh, but when there's something that is maybe a little bit more innocuous like destroying evidence because that is something that gets done in law enforcement and they don't just keep it forever and they don't have infinite warehouse spaces like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They can't just keep it in the warehouse forever. Uh, at some point it's got to go away. So thanks so much for sharing your experience, bud. You got it. And it's always good to hear from Steve Friend. He brings truth and maybe a little bit more sober perspective than uh, some of the, the nonsense that we've been talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Please consider hitting the subscribe button on Rumble, on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, or any of the other dozen places that you can find podcasts. We just added a couple more this week. So please consider subscribing. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard, share it with a friend. You can share it with two. You can share it with 50. It does help us grow the audience and the number of people who have access to this kind of firsthand information, sources like Steve Friend and others. And uh, if you do like what you hear, we'd appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The link is always in the show descriptions. And if you do send one of those, we will read one on the show. So stand by and I will read one right here for you now. Here we go. This one says, it's from Sundrop32, says, excellent. Love your show. I started following you after hearing you on the Dark to Light. That's Tracy Bean's podcast, by the way. It's nice to hear a courageous, trustworthy truth teller in an upside down world of constant lies and scandal. I pray for our country. I pray for you and your family. Stay strong, Kyle. You're doing a great service. Well, that's sort of uh, self-congratulatory for us, but we do appreciate you, Sundrop32. And folks, if you want to have your review read on the air, send one. If you have a zany title, I like those easier. They stand out to my eyes. Again, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, and we will see you again next time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.